Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axon, and today I'm here with uh, John Toddy. And uh, John is actually, we're doing this in conjunction with a, a deeper study that he's doing, and I think he's going to explain that. But among the, uh, the many crises that we're facing, and I think this is like the others, like a postmodern so-called crisis, that it's actually more of an opportunity to examine where we've been and to forge uh, a different way forward, and particularly in regard to our reading of Scripture or our hermeneutic or our method of reading Scripture. And so, John, describe, if you can, for us, then, kind of where we've been and what the options have been. Yeah, okay. Uh, I like how you put that, that in many ways, uh, where we are now is a time and a place when people are looking back towards the history of interpretation, because we've gone through several phases. Uh, The first phase could be called the historical critical and that begins as early as Spinoza, maybe even before that, but we're talking the 17th century, uh, maybe the 16th century. But you have this notion of all of the sudden, people want to read the Bible and ask historical questions, such as who wrote it, who was it written for, what's the date of these texts, what are the sources of these texts, uh, and they're doing that from a critical perspective. So they consider the medieval way of reading scripture as rather naive. Um, And of course, the medieval way, uh, for them, they were thinking this is just very top-down magisterial. The church determines what the meaning of scripture is. So with the advent of historical criticism is a democratization of scripture in the sense that now scholars or readers of the text who have these uh, tools, which were mainly historical tools at the time, can propose other further diverse meanings for the biblical text. And that uh, paradigm reigns even to today, especially in like the academy. Uh, But it's not the only way uh, people think you can critically engage the biblical text anymore. So following historical criticism, or in reaction to would be a better way of putting it, uh, in the 1900s, so just talking 20th century now, would have been Uh, literary criticism, and it itself has gone through different phases. But if you could describe this as what's the relation of the reader to the text, the historical critic in some way wants to get behind the text to see what was really happening uh, in history, whether that's to see uh, what was going on in the ancient Near East, or whether that's to try to find out some original setting, context, author, uh, to then propose some you know, almost fantasized original meaning of the text. That could be happening. The literary critic wants to uh, discover meaning within the text itself. So they're not as concerned about who the author was, uh, necessarily when it was written, those sorts of things. But they're looking at uh, characterization. They're looking at plot. uh, They're looking at how uh, different pericopes work together, where are parallels, where are... Uh, you know, syncrasies where there are comparisons, those types of things within the text to find a meaning within the text. Then towards the end of the 20th century come along the cultural studies critics. Uh, 
And they're drawing from what you referenced as, you know, this postmodern shift or turn and saying, well, actually, now there's a diverse ways that people make meaning when they engage uh, a text or even just, you know, the world or other people. But we're talking about texts here. And it's this acknowledgement that the reader makes meaning when they engage a text. That's not to say that that's the whole picture. It's just to acknowledge that it's happening. Um, and so a cultural studies critic would say, well, even the historical critics and the literary critics are already actually doing this, that they don't start uh, reading the text from nowhere. They're reading from some social location uh, that is there, and they're reading from a horizon. There's a worldview in place that's bigger than they are uh, sort of thing. And so the cultural critics want to pay attention to all of that and propose meanings that are relevant for today. So you, this is social, uh, cultural studies critics, rather. Uh, this would be the realm of your feminist, some of your feminist scholars, your womanist scholars, your uh, people applying critical race theory, people who are looking at post-colonialism or economics. Um, your own reading, I think, is an example of this in a sense that it's applying psychoanalysis, uh, which, you know, uh, psychology would have been unknown to interpreters just a few hundred years before. Not to say that they're not doing those things, they're just not aware of those moves. So I think that's sort of where we're at now, that you have these options. And I don't mean to oversimplify, uh, you know, there's diverse perspectives in each of these three major groups that I just outlined. I remember years ago, Gerhard Mayer, who was at Tübingen University, just took the took apart a historical critical understanding and of course with it with the, the rise of the historical critical understanding then there is the kind of the need to in some way protect the text that you get in a fundamentalist notion of biblical inerrancy or there is a kind of liberal in other words suddenly the text is it becomes it, it's in uh, contention as to, and the idea there, you know, his point is, well, actually, we've all gone through a shift, and we're all working from this presupposition about the text. You know, there is this drive, I think, in the modern period that gives rise to the historical critical reading, a kind of drive to be scientific, and, oh, we're going to even be scientific and all that means, as if science is the be-all and end-all. It is to be our model, even in reading the biblical text. And, of course, we've been through several. One, one of the revolutions is a scientific revolution in which the very foundations of science have been tied then to a kind of social, in other words, we don't do anything. I think people often think, oh, you're saying truth, truth is relative. No, it's just saying we're human. And what it means to be human is that we exist in societies, and that's always the perspective that you get. You know, I think that is the insight, I think, that you get from somebody like Martin Heidegger, and especially his student, Hans-George Gadamer, that they're, they're beginning to, as in the scientific revolution in which Einstein is accounting for the scientist, the observer, I think that that is a way of describing, or, or would you agree, of describing in part then the shift that suddenly, you know, we recognize 
that the reader is himself and the place from which you're reading, you just can't count that out of our interpretive style or our ter- interpretive understanding. Yeah, yeah. I think you said two things that really caught my attention that I liked a lot. You were alluding to the fact that the text becomes almost like a battleground between fundamentalists and uh, mm-hmm. your Protestant liberal approaches to theology. And I think that actually fits well with what you said about the scientific or supposed, you know, scientific readings. That all of this, uh, as you were explaining, comes back to an epistemology. And so it's like there's this empiricist logical positivism that underlies or undergirds the historical critical approach to the text, thinking that the historical critical approach is the best way to read the text, or this is how meaning should be achieved. But with that, perhaps necessarily comes this other notion that the text is going to be a battleground because uh, that scientific reading is a dominating reading. You're assuming in some way that uh, the meaning that you achieve is going to be value-free and objective. Mm-hmm. There can only be one objective meaning to Scripture, right? If this is the, or if this is going to be our presupposition, mm-hmm. so I think that's right. You get these continual fights over what does it mean, and everybody's trying to appeal to uh, a more exact science, if you will, in the text. So eventually, what I think that where it falls apart is that you have people finding ways to dismiss whole books of the New Testament or the Old Testament through these ways of readings, because they'll say, oh, well, you know, this was written much later than it was supposed, or this is composed of multiple sources, or the author who is claimed by the text, or actually most often just the author that was put forward by tradition, uh, couldn't have possibly been the author, and so we're going to to dismiss these texts that we don't want to deal with, which is really a peculiar way of approaching something like the Bible, which if you were talking about the Hebrew Bible, it has been a sacred text for you know over 2,000 years. And if we're talking about uh, the Christian New Testament scriptures, talking about scriptures that have been a central uh, authority or way uh, the church has understood itself in relation to the Hebrew scriptures for you know almost 2,000 years. So in some way, it seems a little odd to try to dismiss any part of this text just because we think we have some kind of scientific insight into its historicity. Uh-huh. You know, a different perspective would say, well, the text is venerable just in the way that it's been used, applied uh, for the way Christian people have understood themselves in their communities for thousands of years and Jewish communities before that. So why would we toss any of it out? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's you know, several fallacies that undergird though that sort of logical positivist empiricist way of thinking that we've just moved beyond. And you mentioned, you know, it's happened in philosophy with people like Heidegger and Gadamer. It's happened in physics with Einstein. So I think all that's interesting and it frees us up then once we can set all that aside and say, well, that project's a dead end, it really frees us up to have a much more positive interaction and engagement with the biblical text. And I think we're living in exciting times because I think that what we're beginning to describe, what's opening up to us, first of all, I think once you see this critique of a particular epistemology or a, a particular hermeneutic, or a, in fact, I think it's just the way that 
at least as moderns, but I'm assuming this is not simply modernity, but certainly it is that. And once you can begin to identify it, it will always take the same structure. That is, you're going to try, you're going to attempt to find some hard and fast thing against which everything else will be measured. That is, you're going to nail it down at two ends. And of course, a way of describing this is we're always involved in this dialectic understanding. And that may be grating on people, but I do just think that it's almost the, the, the frame of mind that we're always looking to contain or uh, a kind of comprehensive uh, understanding that I think is just over and against what the, the scripture, what Jesus, what we're being taught to do in the very notion of faith. And that is that this thing is a holistic human understanding, human undertaking. And of course, I think what we're always about is we're not quite satisfied with being human. And we want to, in some way, step out of that. And I think there are an infinite variety of ways that you can do that. So what we're describing, I think, is an acknowledgement uh, uh, of our finitude, of our locatedness, and in no way a questioning of the truth that we have, but just a recognition of the uh, our limited capacity for truth. In other words, God's true, the word of God, who Christ is, that's true. But that's not a truth that we own or that we can contain in some system. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, in a sense that some of these readings that we've had uh, in the past, well, we still have today, I mean, they're, it's nearly totalitarian in the way people approach the scriptures in the sense that, well, for one, they read the scriptures in such a way to use them or weaponize them against uh, other peoples, and that's happened, you know, throughout history. Uh, but for two, you know, also there's this sort of idea or notion, as you said, that we would like to nail down the meaning or a measurement of meaning. We want to be able to control what scripture is, and that, for one, that's not happening, and that's uh, not the way the New Testament interprets the Hebrew scriptures, in the sense that if you're looking at the way Paul or the authors of the Gospels quote uh, the Hebrew scriptures, they seem to take them as being rather fluid and malleable in what they mean, uh, that they could apply them in such a way that they're meaningful for their own time and place. But also, I think the especially the Hebrew scriptures lend themselves to this, that there's plenty of places, passages now, that we have no idea what they mean. The rabbinic literature is content with offering up a multiplicity of different explanations for different passages. Uh, And it's sort of always understood that the texts are there for us to help us understand who we are as the people of God. So it is an odd reading that wants to come to that and say, Uh, we're going to limit the meaning to some historically uh, imagined meaning, especially when we're talking about texts that are referring to, uh, if they're referring to historical events, you know, some of them are over 4,000 years ago. It's just like, uh, we have no idea. I don't think we can conceptualize what the world is there, but that's what a lot of exegetes have tried to do, right? They try to imagine what was the world that Abraham lived in so we can make sense of Genesis, for example. 
uh, that just seems to be nonsense in the end. One, it doesn't uh-huh. give you much meaning that's useful for today because we're talking about a time that is so far removed from us. Whether it's accurate is a whole nother question, right? But there are other ways of reading these texts. This is the way Christians have read these texts for centuries. But there's other ways of reading these texts that are much more engaging, I think, that we could say even at a theological level uh, for helping us understand who we are and uh, what's going on in the text that we might uh, make use of or might actually ha- be relevant today sort of thing. Yeah, I think that there's always an insertion of a gap that we're trying to get at the true history or we're trying to get at the understanding in the... In other words, the text is never enough in and of itself. And the reason it's in contention is that what people are trying to do with the text, or what they imagine is behind the text, is really, I think, you know, the battleground. And so there, there is a sense, then, that, that it's obvious the kind of uh, malleability in the, in the very contention and of course, the thing I think that we're describing is, oh, it's, it's not removed from us, that we're not trying to obtain some historical truth, not to exclude that, not to say that that might not be included in some way, but the, the Bible's not primarily a history. Uh, that's not the point of it. You know, this was the, I used to do a class on interpretation, I, and, and a lot of it, you just need to go through and say, this isn't what, you know, it's not philosophy, it's not science, it's not, it, it is a very peculiar text in what it is accomplishing. And I think that, in, in fact, we've not had a hermeneutic up to the task. It, it's always introducing this kind of gap. And, and I think there's an inherent mistrust mm-hmm. on both sides of this. That is that uh, I think that trusting the text and using it then not simply as an end in itself, but you know, like, like Christ himself, like the word of Christ himself, it is a frame of understanding that is being shaped for our comprehension of the world that we live in. It's not like we have a world apart from uh, Christ or the, the you know, scripture, and then we we can imagine that we're in some way fitting those frames together. I think, in fact, what we're, we're doing is that we really have a limited access even to this present moment. And a true trust, in other words, an implicit trust in the Word of God, in Christ, is one that we imagine this is our frame of reference, not just to obtain history, not just to uh, uh, obtain something behind that text, but this is the interpretive frame in which we're going to apprehend who we are and what this, what the nature of the world is. That's right. That's right. And I think uh, with that, and this is a part of why I thought this was such a good conversation for forging plowshares, is I think inherently there's a notion of ethical responsibility in interpretation. And what I mean by that is, uh, for example, if we take Genesis 34, which is a rape, which is an account of a rape, it's the rape of Dinah, who is uh, Jacob's daughter. There have been ways of interpreting this text that minimize Dinah as the victim uh, and will victimize Shechem, who is her rapist, 
uh, or who ignore all of those issues in favor of just imagining that, uh, you know, supposedly in this time, in this place, uh, these actions are acceptable. There's all sorts of different interpretations that come from this text. And what we have to ask ourselves today, uh, especially as Christians, you know, people who claim to be followers of Christ and to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, and then especially, you know, if we're to take that a step further and say, well, we're uh, doing a theology of peace, is it ethically responsible to put forward interpretations that uh, seem to prop up the uh, vindication of a rapist in today's culture, which is still very much a rape culture. So that, that's the sort of question that a cultural studies critic wants to bring to the history of biblical interpretation. Uh, for example, in Genesis 34, you have various interpretations, some that just already in the interpretation, if you look at verses 3 and uh, verse 4, I think it is, or verse 2 and verse 3. And the NRSV, it's translated, when Shechem, son of Hamer, the Hivite prince of the region, saw her, he seized her and lay with her by force. There's already this obfuscation of what's even happening. He seized her and lay with her by force. Why don't we translate that as rape? Um, that's a good question. But then verse 3 makes it even more problematic. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And so now the interpreter is given a choice. Who are they going, whose story are they going to follow? With whose eyes are they going to interpret this passage? And of course, as the chapter goes on, Shechem ends up being uh, murdered along with his entire village by Dinah's brothers. But it's not even so much that they have a real concern for her, it seems, that they're just worried about uh, their family reputation or somebody has dishonored them. Jacob, her father, is mostly worried about their reputation in the land and how they're going to get along with other people because now it seems like his sons have double-crossed the Shechemites. All of this is going on in this chapter. So you have various interpretations put forward. A lot of historical critical interpretations say, well, uh, by the laws of the time or by the customs of the time, because Shechem was willing to marry Dinah after the rape, this is okay and he should actually be seen as upstanding or doing uh, something moral in this passage. And I think as uh, 21st century readers, I would just hope we would say, well, that's unacceptable. Uh, first off, it's not even accurate to say that there's one monolithic culture in the ancient world. Like if you start looking at different uh, laws that we have extant, uh, whether that's like Hammurabi's code or... Um, you know, other manuscripts we have that are talking about this time period, which would be, uh, you know, I don't know when we're, we're talking nearly or a little 1900 BCE or something like that. It's just to say, well, there is no monolithic culture that says this is right or wrong. Uh, perhaps later, you know, in the Deuteronomist uh, law, we say, well, this is what should happen. Okay, uh, but why would we read this passage this way? Is it maybe that we as modern day readers are actually uncomfortable with calling out sexual violence for what it is? And we're seeing that play out all around us. I mean, in the United States, we elected a president who 
was comfortable with talking about women and derogatory and violent ways publicly. Uh, tapes came out and it didn't cause enough uproar for him to be uh, you know, dismissed as a possible choice for president of the United States. And four years later, there's still a tight race. I mean, it just shows we live in the same kind of culture that's dealing with these issues. So maybe we don't read the text that way, you know, would be Uh a a good starting place. So we could then, with a text like this, engage these readings, talk about how sexual violence is never okay, and there's this uh, interesting thing that biblical scholars have done over the last two, three hundred years, which is to try to make it okay within these texts. There's lots of rape texts in Genesis especially, but throughout the Hebrew Bible, and confront that in a way that we put interpretations forward now that we would consider that are ethically responsible. We're taking a stand against sexual violence and so on. So I think it's a, you know, this isn't just some abstract uh, academic exercise when we're talking about interpreting the biblical text. There's a lot at stake. There is the sense in in which we're not letting what we know to be the case. Uh, Rape is an evil. And the oppression of people, the oppression of women, the slaughter of people, these are evils. Mm-hmm. We come, you know, it's not that we've come to this understanding in some sort of vacuum. We've come to this understanding because of the ethic and model that we have in Christ. And so we've been inducted into an understanding that I think we just need to, it's not that there is no tension there, but We have to recognize that in this sense, I think, that our interpretive frame is set by the person and work of Christ. Yeah, yeah. And so um, do we take that seriously when we interpret, which is already to make this move to say interpretations aren't value-free judgments, but whenever we offer up an interpretation, we're saying something about ourselves, uh, what we've paid attention to likely, says something about what uh, the community that we live in values. Um, Are we going to put all that forward in a way where we're uh, operating with some sense of consciousness about these things? Or are we going to continue to think that we can have objective meanings uh, from the text? The text just is what it is type of thing. And that just, uh, I mean, there's so much that opens up in a biblical understanding. I think that uh, for much of my lifetime, the arguments surrounding the early chapters of Genesis and all of the sweat and, you know, blood, sweat, and tears that went into defending various understandings of how that text fits into various scientific theories. And of course, the the whole point is, oh, that that whole conversation was just missing the boat entirely. It just was a failure to understand, to recognize that what is unfolding in Genesis is mm-hmm. then taken up then in who Christ is. I mean, this is, I think, the value of a, understanding a book like John in the interpretive frame that it gives us, and John's reading of Genesis through Jesus. That should have always been the idea that here we're encountering. This is not a book about science. It's not a book in which Uh, the origins of the universe are under contention, but it's a book about worship and it's a book about the nature of the universe that we live in. I've seen this in my life and just the, the, the kind of futility, you know, that's kind of the education that I was 
educated in one frame or one form. And, uh, of course, going to Japan, you suddenly realize uh, what a constraint a culture puts upon us in its reading and even upon our, our form of thought. And so in some way, I think that, our, that we're to be freed up. In other words, we are encountering something here that should transform and free us up from those kind of violent subordination of the Word of God uh, to the human frame of understanding. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good point. I mean, it brings up the question, like, why does this persist? Um, you've already talked about sort of this huge change philosophically, uh, literarily, uh, in science, in the natural sciences and physics, uh, towards the postmodern, or just an acknowledgement, rather, that, you know, this modern frame of reference uh, that held objective meaning and sort of the idea that the universe is closed and we might be able to explain everything uh, in sort of a determinist fashion, that all of that's come crashing down around us. Mm-hmm. So it is an interesting question. Why, why do these readings continue to persist, uh, both in I think, you know, definitely in the universities and in, you know, Bible colleges, but also in the church. And I wondered if you wanted to share your experience about that, especially because you have this unique experience of having done church in Japan and then come back to the United States after, I think, changing a lot yourself mm-hmm. uh, in the way that you read and interpreted. You know, the, the thing that occurred and, and that is in my research there, it's in the book, but in my uh, PhD dissertation, even though I, I don't, it may not be immediately reflective of that. And of course, I think that what you begin to get is, I, you know, the job of a missionary is, first of all, to locate yourself. Where am I? You know, what is this? What is Japan? What is, how do these people conceive of themselves? And as I got into that and I began to pursue, you know, first of all, you can't presume that you know that. And as I got into that and recognized that one of the main literatures there explaining to Japanese who they are to themselves, first of all, it was very much framed within a Buddhist, obviously, as in Buddhist orientation. But that, in, in other words, I think that part of what we're describing, that there has to be a deep, trust. Is there a universal word from God in Christ that's addressing every people in every culture? And not to say that we're going to immediately understand that. In other words, we have to, that that's going to manifest itself differently. And that's, of course, what took me in. I realized that what I was encountering there was, strangely enough, a, a kind of privileging of the, the notion of death and the notion of uh, uh, what in, and specifically, I mean this, I'm not using language here that is strange, but it was specifically in a Japanese interpreter to the Japanese of who Japanese are. It was specifically taking up the Freudian notion of death drive and linking, actually he uses the term Nirvana principle, that opened up to me and, and moving into that if I'm going to understand what that is, that took me then to study of Sigmund Freud. And in this culture, when you, when you talk about 
Freud. I, it, you almost have to be careful because that you know that who, who you're talking to because there is a kind of misunderstanding of what that might mean. You know, does the Bible address us at a deep psychological place? And so then you begin to get in. Well, who is Sigmund Freud? Well, he's he's uh, coming out of a Hebraic understanding of the world. And that is very much what's happening in what we call psychoanalysis. In other words, it is an application of a Hebraic understanding in which words and language, you know, this people of the book have a, a peculiar insight, of course, that unfolds in Christ. All of that came together in, in my reading of people like Freud and then uh, Jacques Lacan and Slavoj Zizek. It's not that any of them, you know, this is the thing that Zizek and Lacan recognized. Oh, we're not doing anything other than what the Apostle Paul did. Now, they're atheists, but what they're saying is there is this deep insight. And I just believe this. I just, I implicitly trusted this. But this insight, you know, the thing that happens in a frame of understanding that would objectify, nail down, it is a conversation stopper. It is one that in which our understanding comes to a certain point. And in other words, there's no application. There's a, con there's a discontinuation of the insight that we're looking for. It's what is happening in a true encounter with the Word of God is that we're continually drawn into a deeper insight into who we are and what sort of world that we live in. I think we need the interpretive tool of the Word of God, but what we do with that tool is that we begin to apply it and use it and comprehend, not in a you know, final or full way, but a continually applied way. Yeah, and so um, after coming to that understanding, which I think uh, you know fits nicely with what we're describing, this sort of move beyond... Um, it's a move, be, definitely a move beyond just a historical critical way of approaching scripture, uh, which is also, I mean, in another way, uh, a move beyond a way of even thinking about religion and culture. You know, it's you've ceased to reify those things. Uh, you've decentered them from their totalizing sort of objective uh, place in a lot, in at least a lot of academic studies. What was it like then coming back to the United States and teaching at a you know, small Bible college where they very much had a fundamentalist way of engaging and reading Scripture? As I look back on that period, it was, it was a bizarre experience. Uh, you weren't there. You, you came at the end, and so you may have seen this all unraveling. But when I first came, I couldn't figure out what in the world, what, what is this place that I've come back to? And I thought, I, I knew there was something wrong. I knew that things were, you know, it's sort of uh, you're in a, a haunted house and you don't know why, why it's haunted. And so I had left and, and come back. Of course, part of it was the particular institution that we were at. But I, it wasn't just that. It was that uh, the fundamentalism and I don't know that I, that it had been this extreme 
or, or the, the particular brand of understanding that I'd left with is what I came back to. But I, it was just real hard to, I, I thought there must be something wrong with me. I was having trouble getting my feet. I, you know, we call that culture shock. So part of it was culture shock, but part of it was also, I just didn't recognize the, uh, the degree to which this closed frame, this a kind of an yeah. anti-intellectualism, uh, an anti-engagement with the, with the world. You can't be a missionary. Well, you can. I mean, maybe many people are. But you can't be uh, on, you know, a true missionary, I think, engaging a culture, coming to understand it, and live in the kind of fundamentalist bubble, kind of closed frame, in which there is a, such a thing as dangerous books and dangerous thought. Mm-hmm. And so all of that was, in a way, it was new to me, or at least I was seeing it in a way that I'd never seen it before. I remember, uh, you know, for me, seeing the juxtaposition was in the way that you taught a class on one of the Gospels, the Gospel of John, in comparison to the way the synoptic gospels were taught actually i guess it wasn't uh the other classes weren't just synoptic gospels were they it was under the title of the life of christ which already tells you why it's so problematic right uh to imagine that the four gospels brought together and harmonized would give you a chronological historical account of jesus's life uh and that that would be meaningful is pretty problematic already and so bland in comparison to what you were teaching in the Gospel of John, which was, uh, I think, to appreciate historical critical work. And that's something we should say, is that it's not like uh, moving beyond to other way, theological readings, cultural studies readings. I sort of think they're all the same, you know, whether you call it philosophical reading or a theological reading. It is theologically reading. Who's more? Who should be more... Uh, you know, adamant about making sure that women and uh, minorities and the least of these aren't oppressed than theologians. But uh, so anyway, uh, we're doing a theological reading that appreciates you know, things we can learn from history or historical data, also appreciates sort of that literary perspective of characters and plot development, the book itself, how it's put together, but definitely going beyond to ask you know, these more meaningful questions about like, well, what is the gospel of John uh, doing in relation to us uh, who live in a culture of death or who live in a very violent place, who, you know, we're a people who are very warlike, uh, we're a people, you know, just ask, uh, that have economic inequality, that have to deal with racism. And I think we worked through some of those issues with the biblical text in ways that are just not only more interesting but I think actually more relevant. And so I thought those, it provides a nice contrast between these points of view. Yeah, it was, it certainly wasn't the way that, you know, that's not the training that I received, but I also need to say that all that I was doing was reading the Bible Mm -hmm. at the same time we're reading it. It's teaching us how to read. And it's not like, Oh, I arrived at some new theory and began to apply it. No, it's just there, especially, you know, that that these books are, uh, that certainly John, he's telling us something about how to read the Old Testament and who Christ is in relationship, you know, to creation. The whole book and the frame of the book, it is certainly theological, 
It's certainly historical. It's not to, to depart from that. It is teaching us a, a new way of thinking, and, and it is over and against, I think, uh, the, the world, you know, that a kind of dualistic, I think that people can come to John and say, oh, look, he's playing the Gnostic game or he's doing, no, that's precisely the, the world that he's, uh, you know, undoing, that it's not that the darkness cannot be penetrated, it's that the light overcomes the darkness. It's not that life and death are a permanent dialectic, it's that death is being undone and defeated. It's not that the truth is floating in kind of an isolation. No, it's an exposure of the kind of uh, closed, lying system of which people are part. That's just John. That's just what he's doing. And I think we've closed ourselves off to that. You know, that's a, that's a kind of self-critical. It's a cultural criti critique. But it's also, at the same time, imbuing a, a completely different epistemology and hermeneutic. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And in a very powerful way uh, that to say, if you're going to understand what a book like the Gospel of John is about, you're not going to do that by uh, imagining that its purpose is to enlighten you about the ancient world. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's just the book itself tells you that's not what it's doing, right? Uh, it's encouraging belief. It's encouraging a transformation in the way we see the world. And at the end of the day, uh, that is sort of what this cultural critical or cultural studies theological way of reading the scripture is all about. We engage the scriptures such that we might you know, find union with God. We might live in the world in a more holy way. We might uh, become Christians. <laughs> you know, it's a... Uh, which mm. that... Sounds like it shouldn't be that shocking, but that's just not the way most people read the Bible. I'm even reminded of our conversations with Douglas Campbell, because this is sort of where his book, The Pauline Dogmatics, is headed, right? Uh, the concluding section are chapters about uh, gender, sex, uh, post-colonialism, race. I'm trying to remember what all the chapters, uh, chapter names are, the issues that they deal with. And the idea that he comes up with, or the idea that he's working with there, is that our job as good readers of the Bible and as Christian theologians is to deconstruct a foundationalism that would have us read the text in a way that were, uh, you know, dominating others or that were approaching the text so to find, you know, objective meanings or anything like that, but that it's a bit more fluid and that what happens when we read the text and engage and uh, is that we're actually changed by the text. Of course, you know, um, Campbell's working with Bartian notions and it's Bart who says uh, that the Bible is a strange new world that we enter into. Um, it's not a a world that we critique from outside, but it's a world that we have to, you know, inhabit to be able to start understanding what's going on. And it changes and transforms us uh, by those means. And so I think if I were to put a label, which, you know, is a dangerous thing to do, but on Campbell's project, and I just didn't have the terms at the time, I don't think, uh, but I remember us talking to him about, oh, well, this is so much better than just an old, boring, historical, critical reading of 
uh, the Pauline texts. You know, he's engaging in such a way where he's interested in uh, what does it look like to be a community, uh, the people of God. He's reading in a way that he's asking questions about history and what does it mean to be historically located people and, you know, culturally located people and so on. Uh, I think this is maybe a way of thinking about his project as well. And and sort of like what we were just talking about in the Gospel of John, the whole project, and this is sort of the biblical project, right, Uh, in overcoming sin, is to overcome our notions of foundationalism in which we would set ourselves up as sort of the judges of uh, the way things are. You know, that's a way to read Genesis chapter 3 even. You know, we're moving beyond us being the arbiters of what's true and what's not or what's good and what's evil. And that just opens up a, a world for us. Uh, every day it, it strikes me, at, I'm, I'm coming to a kind of new recognition of that. Uh, I did a blog just this morning, uh, actually dealing with a Kantian category. But I think he's actually hit upon a very biblical understanding. Again, he's, he's hit upon an idea that if you read it from a biblical perspective, you can suddenly see where Kant has fallen short, where he stopped short, and where a biblical understanding can actually deconstruct that. And that I think this applies directly because I think the frame of reference that Kant is living in is precisely what we're describing as being undone at this present moment. That is, if there were a modern, this is the guy. And what he, what he is talking about is the experience of the sublime. The sublime, as he describes it, you know, we've all had the experience, this experience. You know, maybe I, I use the illustration of a boy, I, when I was a boy and out riding my horse out in the middle of the prairie. I'm out there by myself, you know, 14 years old, 15 years old. And I can't, you know, it's just endless grass and, and wilderness And then you see around you, you're surrounded by thunderstorms. Not that they're threatening, but they're moving your way. Two reactions can come about. One is that can be a fearful moment. But of course, the sublime experience is it's not fearful, but in fact, that experience is is thrilling. Because suddenly there is a, a kind of enlargement of one's own you know, I'm the one that I, I'm, I'm witnessing this great thing. I think it's a kind of encounter. I took it as a boy. I said, well, the, here I'm encountering God out on the Texas prairie. And I think that's what Kant is describing. But unfortunately, Kant doesn't have the tools mm-hmm. to, because he's working, I think he's working within a kind of uh, world, a Newtonian frame in which there are absolute laws of the universe and that you know, even in uh, an understanding of the human mind, there's these a priori categories and everything, including this. He's going to describe this experience that I think is, I think he's hit upon a really Christian experience. But he says that what the experience is, it certainly points to our immortality, he says. But of course, what he fails to, to grasp is, Well, no, actually, it's not simply an apprehension of our immortality, but it's a recognition of our mortality, of, you know, our smallness, but it's simultaneously the recognition, you know, it's like the Copernican revolution at the same time that Copernicus is knocked from the center of the universe, or he, you know, he 
he removes the earth and man and but it's that same move in which he comes up with a mathematical apprehension of the movement of the planets mathematically in other words it's it's simultaneous and what he describes then as the apprehension of this thing that it's a kind of limited creativity that in some way it's a natural thing well i think by missing the thing that we're threatened by you know he recognizes it's negative he calls it a a, a negative pleasure which is very interesting but i think he didn't go far enough with the negative to get at the fullness of the positive that is that there is a limit there is a limit to the world this is you know the creation ex nihilo that our encounter with nature and the power of nature just the fact the wonder of existence is amazing and in scripture you know this is the the picture of creation ex nihilo i'm afraid i i don't want to reduce it in other words that we want to recognize oh there's a power there's an explosive power unleashed in the world and paul is equating that with the recognition uh this is resurrection faith in other words two things come together and i think paul is describing what kant is describing as the sublime experience but what paul is doing does not it's not within the closed frame of oh here are these a priori principles and here is the frame of that experience i think what paul is describing you know first of all creation ex nihilo that is a limit experience we you know science breaks down a uh, thought breaks down we can't comprehend that and that incomprehension is an encounter with god so to the limit experience of death itself that we can't comprehend that but that's not uh you know that's not the point the point is that the power that we experience in resurrection faith it is an experience i think first of all we have to say that but it's an experience it's not exclusive of cognition but it's not captured by that cognition and i think the kind of thinking that we are attuned to is in fact the kantian frame in which he's describing this whole experience the sublime experience but i'm afraid that he's caught it up in a web of uh, in which he's going to reduce both what you're encountering he says that what you're truly you know the real experience is the sublime is that we recognize human reason is resides above nature no i think he's missed the point the sublime experience is not simply that we have a reason that is above nature but in fact we've had an encounter with god a personal encounter with god that is part of who we are in other words we have that ability but that's not something you can reduce down to reason per se or to the operation of the mind that's a holistic sort of experience that's the sort of thing that there is insight to be had but what we need to recognize is that a right reading a right understanding is going to break through the barriers that have been put into place by modernity. Yeah, I I was thinking of the way you were describing your experience uh a lot I mean a way of or that Copernican revolution even a way of grasping those two things at once uh, you could 
call it a recognition of contingency. It's not that we have to, I'm trying to remember the exact language you used, you know, it's not that, oh, these things are menacing, but it's also sort of thrilling, this, this idea of the sublime. It's to realize, you know, even just as existing, uh, we do have this wonderful thing that's existence, but it's also contingent uh, upon God. Creation ex nihilo is, what I guess, what spurred the thought on. Uh, and I think that is what's always happening in this sort of engagement with the text or with scripture or the Bible. Uh, this idea that, uh, yeah, we are making meaning as we read, you know, this is sort of postmodern sensibility, but it's also a meaning that is uh, hopefully shaped at least by our own uh, contingency upon the text as the word of God. Um, not that I, I wouldn't even reduce the idea of the word of God to the text itself. Uh, just saying that's what's happening. And that's, that is quite powerful, I think. Yeah. I think we've all had these experiences, but of course, then unfortunately, I went to Bible college and I went to seminary and I learned not to, to think like I thought as a boy. <laughs> and I think that if I'd had proper training, proper discipleship, yeah. I wouldn't have been turned away from that experience. But we would have turned into it and said, okay, I think that that, you know, that that is an authentic recognition that we need to unfold that. I think that what mm -hmm. becomes available to us is a continual access to this epiphany, this sublime experience. Uh, I'm not saying we go around all the time, you know, in a joyous, wondrous thing. You know, I, and I didn't understand this as a boy that I kept going out. I kept riding out into the prairie because I wanted to have that wondrous experience again. I think that as a Christian, that that's available to us. In other words, that is the frame of understanding that's open to us. First of all, if we imagine we enfold, we limit who God is in that or we limit and imagine, in other words, that, that we're going to kill the very notion of the sublime. I think this is the great insight of a Jewish understanding about God, that I think we need to be very cautious. In fact, I just don't think, in other words, we, we understand who God is in Christ, but that is an uh, understanding that uh, does not mean that's not a limitation or a delimitation. We're not reducing God to the incarnation, but we're opening up eternity to us through that frame of reference. And so I think we need, that is a kind of depiction of the sublime. There is our experience, but our experience and our cognition itself opens up then uh, to this thing that is beyond us. You know, it is, it is an encounter with uh, uh, overwhelming forces that are not simply natural. No, those overwhelming forces, uh, ultimately, we recognize are a reflection of the divine. Yeah, that's good. Just thinking like, uh, like in what, what have we said so far? Uh, because it's been a lot, I think. Uh, in some ways, it's that when we read, we don't just read from uh, nowhere, would be, uh, I guess, a way of putting it idiomatically. Um, we all have a place from which we read. And when we engage a text like Scripture, which is, you know, a sacred text where we uh, imagine we're going to encounter God, 
that's not going to be, we're not going to end up with just some kind of objective propositions, uh, whether that comes in the form of a doctrine or uh, whether that comes in the form of us making historical assertions about uh, the ancient world or what the text must mean because of the ancient world. And I would hope we also, you know, we don't want what a lot of people do is just sort of a privatized, personalized meaning to the text. Well, I feel it feels like this to me sort of thing but that we're describing an interaction with Scripture that uh, takes seriously where we are in as human beings located in time and space and uh, a community with concerns and uh, we're on a horizon, we have a worldview, this sort of thing, as well as acknowledging that uh, the text is a way in which God will speak to us and into that world and that when we do, when we have this sort of critical engagement of the text along these lines, uh, we're open to both seeing what other Christians and other times, whether that be you know, scholarly or uh, more historic readings of the text, and we we engage them all to say, well, what does this mean? What does it mean now? What has it mean? Which readings are, uh, what lays behind the readings, I guess you could say? Like, what are the philosophical foundations of different interpretations? And what is our ethical responsibility and as interpreters of the text of making sure that when we put forward an interpretation, you know, this is uh, something that is going to promote peace and justice and not do harm. And that's, that's a lot to be concerned with as readers of the Bible. You know, you touched upon that. It's a note that needs to needs to be hit again. And that is that I think there is a violent reading that is not just that you come out of the biblical understanding with the notion that violence is acceptable, but I, in fact, I think you're applying a violent reading. You're doing violence to the Word of God in order to derive from it uh, an understanding that is itself violent. And so I think that what we're describing is a peaceable understanding, a realization, a growing realization of peace. I don't know what to call it, you know, other than that, other than to say that, that there is this realization of the fullness of the peace of Christ. Uh, is that a, a hermeneutic? <laughs> I think it can be. It is almost overwhelming and overwhelming kind of thing, because first of all, it's undoing so much, <laughs> because I think we are just continually surrounded by violence of every every kind, you know, not just a physical violence that, you know, and that, that is bad enough in itself, the, the warmongering attitude. But that, of course, arises from a kind of social violence and then a psychological violence. And so what is being put in place uh, continually is this participation in who God is in the Trinity that brings about a kind of peace that passes understanding. I, I think we just have to return to that again and again. I am describing an experience. I don't, I don't mind saying that. I think we need to say that. We need to draw in our morality, our cognition, our emotions. In other words, this is a holistic experience. I didn't draw out the moral issue in this, but of course the thing that Kant misses is precisely, you know, this is the great Kantian failure. There is a failure of the categorical imperative, the Kantian notion 
that we can in some way make ethics an absolute that becomes then a, a form of moral duty that Freud is going to read that and say, oh, no, that's not moral duty. That's moral masochism. That is that Kant is, I think, an exposure of the way that this violent frame of reference gives rise to an ethic that is itself violent. There's almost great value in seeing the weaknesses in Kant and what Kant gives rise to. You know, once we encounter, once we focus on, oh, our problem is that we have not faced the reality of death and the sense in which we are committed to the way of death. The true sublime experience is an over overcoming, not just of, you know, that category in, in the sense of isolated from ethics. That is a new ethic. Resurrection faith is a new ethic that can afford to be peaceable. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a good note to end on, probably. That's powerful. Good stuff, John. I'm glad I'm glad you uh, brought up doing this conversation. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I was, I was actually just thinking about other relevant... Um, you know, reading is actually... Been, interpretation and reading has been a national news in the past few weeks because of the Supreme Court justice confirmation. Uh, what would it mean to be, uh, what are the two words, an originalist and a textualist? Right, uh, right, yeah. Sounds a lot like yeah. fundamentalism to me. <laughs> oh, it, that, that's precisely what's at stake. How do you read the Constitution? Do you read it as, oh, we want to do the original intent of the authors of the Constitution? Uh, no, that is a fundamentalist reading, reading of the text. Good All stuff, right, thank John. You. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.